If you would turn your Bibles to John's Gospel, to the seventh chapter, John 7, this morning. And let me just say, if I haven't spoken to you since last week, I am so glad to see you, and I am so glad to be home. Red-eye flights from Los Angeles International Airport to Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport through the night on Saturday night are not my idea of fun. So I, I rolled into my driveway literally at 10.30 on the nose, looking like a hobo from L.A. and uh, in desperate need of a shower and some rest. And so I, man, did I miss being with all of you last Lord's Day. It killed me. Um, I, I shudder to think what I sounded like at the American Airlines counter in Bakersfield, begging them to get me home so that I could be home in time for church on Sunday morning. Uh, but by God's grace, I am home, and I am with you this morning, and I could not be more happy or more uh, thrilled to be with you. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help one final time for the preaching of the word, and then we'll dive into verses 1 through 9 of John 7. Father, again, this is your word. May your spirit preach a better sermon than any man can preach now as your word is read and as it is expounded upon may it be christ who is magnified may it be christ who is known may it be the spirit of god doing the work of god in places where only god can reach so that in the end and in the final analysis as we leave today god alone is magnified you alone are loved and adored as we see your son reflected in the scriptures We pray, Father, that you would do these things for your honor and glory. Amen. In John chapter 7, we read this. After these things, now that takes us back to chapter 6 and all of the feeding of the 5,000 and the teaching that Jesus did afterward. After all of those things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. I've entitled this passage and trying to describe it of plans and providence. The sovereignty of God is a a glorious truth. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the sovereignty of God is the securing truth of all truths. To know that God reigns and to know that God is in absolute and total control over everything at every place in every time is a greatly securing truth. 
Charles Spurgeon said that it was the pillow upon which he rested his head at night, that God is sovereign. Whether it is over the individual relationship of the sinner to God, as he is, Jesus has been describing in chapter 6 of John's Gospel, or the following through to the completion of Jesus' own very itinerary in ministry, God in every turn demonstrates that he is the one who is in control. Jesus here in John 7 demonstrates to us that because he believes in the sovereignty of his father's plan, he will be undaunted in carrying out the will of the father down to the very most minute detail. Jesus is predominantly determined above everything else to do his father's will. And because he believes his father is sovereign, nothing will distract or deter Jesus from that mission. You know, brothers and sisters, that's true for us as well. If we believe that God is sovereign, it will not allow us to be distraught or distracted in whatever it is that God calls us to do. We move on because he has laid the road for us. We move forward in faith in his sovereignty that God reigns. And we are unafraid and we are undeterred to do whatever it is that God has laid before us to do on that day. And as I say that, we are probably all thinking that, well, Pastor Brian must be referring to, you know, the fact that somebody in this room is supposed to go to Africa tomorrow as a missionary. That that there is some big plan that we shouldn't be deterred from. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign in everything. That means for some of you, when you change your baby's diaper tomorrow, that's God's plan. Don't be discouraged. Don't be overwhelmed with the mundane of life. Everything in our life is under his sovereign control. Whether you're David Livingston transversing the African continent or whether you're a faithful mom at home loving your children, God is sovereign in that. And everything in between. Jesus is a perfect example for us of God's sovereignty and even his trust in his Father's sovereign plan. And so Jesus, here in John 7, 1 through 9, is going to execute from beginning to end that plan without variation because he believes his Father is sovereign. As we see Jesus doing so, and as we see Jesus going about his life and living this way, it ought to to elicit in us even more trust for ourselves in the sovereignty of the Father, in the goodness, in the greatness of the Father. So this morning, our, our, our theme, if we were to try to summarize this first nine verses, I think we could say this. That the revelation of Jesus as sovereign God sets him at odds with the minds of men. You see, not everyone is going to like the sovereign plan of God. In fact, most are going to hate it. Most are going to hate the sovereign God and his plan. But the revelation that Jesus is God and working underneath the sovereignty of his father and his father's plan, will in this passage set him at odds with men and with a world that is hostile to not only what he does, but what he 
does not do. And you'll see that as we work our way through the text this morning. A world who is at odds with the sovereignty of God will hate not only what Jesus does, but what he does not do. And those are important things to be considered. And so two points that I want you to understand from the text this morning are these. Number one, a sovereign understanding. And two, a sovereign rejection. Starting with a sovereign understanding of what is transpiring in Jesus' ministry, we read that after these things, Jesus is walking in Galilee. It is now autumn. It is roughly six months later, uh, given the mention of the Feast of Booths, which occurs typically about this time of year, maybe a couple of weeks later, mid-October. Typically, this is the time for the Feast of Booths, as the Jews would have known it. And so six months after the spring of a very, a very high-profile ministry on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is now opening a new chapter of ministry. We see that Jesus has been teaching in the synagogues of Capernaum and going throughout the region. In fact, the language would lead us to believe that Jesus is very active, very active. Uh, this past week, I had an opportunity to reflect back on the ministry of George Whitfield. Some of you will know that name, the, the, the Calvinistic evangelist. Uh, itinerant preacher of the colonial days in America's history. In, in his second journey, and he made many journeys, in his second journey, he traveled over 6,000 miles between the colonies over roughly a 12-month period preaching the gospel. That's a lot when you're walking. That's a lot when you're on horseback. That's a, one of the, the most uh, fascinating uh, points in Whitfield's life was he was trying to get from Charleston, South Carolina to Savannah, Georgia, but there were no roads, so he took a canoe. And he was just frenetic in his pace of preaching. The language here would indicate that Jesus was unwilling to walk in Judea, but he did walk in Galilee, and it was a constant movement. Jesus covered much ground we don't know exactly Every place Jesus preached. But Jesus has been busy in Galilee during this six-month interlude between the episode of the Capernaum Synagogue at the end of chapter 6 and where we are this morning. So Jesus has made his way all over the Galilean region, teaching and preaching. It's a constant nature to his travels that he's on the move all the time. I want you to notice something here in the text this morning that these journeys of Jesus in Galilee are modified. They're described by an overarching motivation that is equally unceasing. Not only was he wanting to teach in Galilee, he is unwilling to teach in Judea. As much as he is constantly willing to go wherever he can in Galilee, he is equally unwilling to go to Judea. He has been there in the past. He left there because the people of Judea are angry with him. In fact, we read in John chapter 5, verse 18, the last time he was there, that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
He, he left not on good terms with the people of Judea. And as much as he was eager to teach and to move about and to, to go around Galilee, he was equally unwilling to go to Judea. Why? Because as we will determine, he is convinced the father has a sovereign plan. Now, his brothers come and they present him with a, a conundrum. We think you should go. There are people who want to hear. They go so far as to use the word disciples. And Jesus says, no, I won't go. Now that goes, that flies in the face of, of man-centered ministry that is so prevalent in our world. Well, if they want you, certainly that's where you need to be. If, if this strategy will work, if, if the pragmatism of this strategy will work, why don't you go? Jesus says it's not part of the Father's plan. There is a sovereign plan in motion, and, and Judea is not my main concern. The Father's will is. Although our hearts were as submitted as Jesus is here to, to whatever the Father's plan is, that's what we want for our lives. Trusting that, that whatever God has is indeed a sovereign plan. It can be nothing less if God is involved. Jesus says, I cannot go. They are eager to take my life in Judea. It is not yet time. No, there will be a time, won't there? There will be a time when Jesus does go to Judea and when Jesus does interact with the religious leaders in such a way that it results in his death. But it won't be their plan that ends his life. It will be his plan. John ten eighteen. no one takes it, meaning my life, away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down because of the sovereignty of God, because of the sovereignty of his plan, and I have authority to take it up again. You won't kill me because you wanted to kill me. You'll kill me by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, as Peter will say on Pentecost in Acts 2. That's why this happened. Not for any other reason. And so Jesus gives, even there in John 10, as much as not going in John 7 is an expression of his sovereignty, he gives another expression of his sovereignty about how he will eventually go and lay it down. The bottom line is this, brothers and sisters, Jesus will not be robbed of his glory. As we look at John 7, we can rest assured that Jesus has determined to do the will of his Father and nothing that would take the glory away from Jesus will be remotely considered. He will do everything in such a way, even down to the initiative of when he goes and where he goes, he knows brings glory to himself and to his Father and he is not willing that anything would get in the way of that. Not even the promise of fame. Not even the promise of disciples who are waiting on him. Only the glory of the Father is his concern. And so Jesus stays there in the Galilean region. And we read at the end of verse 1. He does so because the Jews were seeking to kill him. It would have been a premature death. It would, be, would have been one that he uh, was not planning on. And so he stays. He stays. Now, 
for those who believe that this hostility to Jesus in Judea is simply because they don't know him. You understand the the whole context wrong if that's the way you think. Their hostility towards Jesus is not because they don't have exposure to Jesus. It is because they have had exposure to Jesus. Increased opposition to Jesus comes as he makes himself known more and more. So I think there's an angle there, an opportunity for us to, to realize that. And to be faithful to our own proclamation of truth and of the gospel. People don't reject Jesus. People don't reject our gospel endeavors with them because they don't know enough. They reject them because they do know enough many times. They don't want the Jesus that scripture presents. This is not for lack of knowledge. And we need, to, we need to understand that, that these people are not believing because they haven't heard. They are choosing not to believe because they have heard. After all, go back to John 5. They are angry that he has made himself equal with God. That's the problem. It's not that he healed on the Sabbath. That was the, that was the entry point. What really angers them is that he has equivocated himself with God. And that they cannot abide by. And so as his brothers come with this carnal carnal reasoning to somehow tweak the plan a little bit, to to sprinkle a little pragmatism on there, because after all, Jesus, they, they just don't know. No, they do know. That's the problem. They know and they have rejected. As Jesus becomes more clear, Expect opposition to increase. Brothers and sisters, let's be faithful. Let's not be deterred. Let us as well be be convinced of the sovereign plan of God. Don't be discouraged when the world around us becomes more familiar with our message and yet becomes more hostile to it. The more Christ is known, the more Christ will be rejected by those whom God is not calling. That's clear in John chapter 6. Those who the Father calls, come. And those who are not called, do not come. They cannot see. And so Jesus is relying again heavily on those truths he has already proclaimed in John 6. And this is the backdrop of the dialogue with his Half-brothers, strategic in the sovereign timing of Jesus. They need to understand that. But strategic is that Jesus would orchestrate time in his own ministry to fall here at the Feast of Booths. Let's talk about that for a moment. Now, the Feast of the Jews, verse 2, the Feast of Booths was near. What is the Feast of Booths? The Feast of Booths, many of you will remember, is one of the three mandatory Feast that a Jewish male was obligated to attend. Didn't matter where you lived, you were to make pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. And during this seven day period, you were to construct a, what we might call a lean to or a shelter out of sticks most often. And they would dwell in those. And it was a period of time, it was a Sabbath week where no work was to be done. And they would live in these 
temporary tabernacles, these temporary tents, booths, to remember what God did for them during the wilderness wanderings. And what did God do during the wilderness wanderings? Well, he provided, didn't he? He provided miraculously for them. He provided bread. He provided quail. He provided water. All that the people of God needed, God supplied. So can you imagine if if your boss came to you, or some of you who own your own businesses, you went to your employees this week and said, listen, we're going to take seven days off. And all we're going to do is for seven days rehearse the goodness of God in our lives. That'd be a great week, wouldn't it? A paid week of vacation to reflect on the glories and the goodness of God. What a time that would have been. And so these people, they have, they have left their labors behind and they've come together to build these, these tents to remind them of what they once lived in and commemorate the provision and the work of God during that wandering. More stunning is the backdrop when you realize what Jesus is preparing to do. You see, Jesus orchestrates in his sovereignty the timing for this confrontation with his brothers, with his eventual trip to Jerusalem, to coincide with all of these pathetic-looking little tabernacles that had been built. As great as God's provision had been to Israel in the past, nothing compares to what Jesus is coming to announce. We, we could say it this way. If you thought that was something, you ain't seen nothing yet. And yet they had. Because in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read this. And you might go back in your Bibles to John 1, 14 this morning. Just, so just turn over there because I want you to see it with your own eye. And if you're a note taker, maybe circle it and put a note out in the margin that this is what we are led back to consider from this verse in John 7, 2. John writes of Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt. That's been a long time since we were in John 1.14. But if you can and you do remember, that word dwelt literally means tabernacled. The Feast of Tabernacles is now contrasted with the true tabernacle. Jesus Christ has come and tabernacled among us. If we think about the provisions of God, bread and quail and water are nothing compared to God himself dwelling among us. And his, his, his half-brothers are clueless. Just go to the feast, Jesus. Just show them what a great teacher you are. Maybe a little bit of a political leader too. But get to Jerusalem and get the job done. You'll find a welcoming crowd. And Jesus says, no. I have come. And it is God who has come and dwelling among us so that their sin may be revealed and the remedy for their sin provided. They don't want to hear it. So I'm not going. Jesus is the fulfillment of this feast. 
He's what needs to be seen, not the little wooden structures. His brothers are clueless about this. Jesus understands both the season of sin that would rob him of his glory were they to take his life in their timing and were he to capitulate to the plans of his brothers and other mere mortals. But he also understands the opportunity that he has as the true and living tabernacle, the true and living bread to exalt himself at the right time as the savior that he is. And he will not be robbed of that opportunity. He will not enter the the play, if you will, at the wrong time. He wants to reserve it so that it has the impact that God has designed that it would have as he, the living tabernacle, comes against the backdrop of superficial tabernacles. He does make that appearance later in this chapter. In verse 37, we read this. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, and by the way, it had been extended as had so much of the law to eight days. Now, the commandment was seven, but the Jews were so good at adding to the law that by the end of that week, they said, you know, if seven's good, eight's better. So on the eighth day, by Jesus' time, this eighth great day that the Jews had just happened to add, Jesus stands and he cries out. Now, get the, get the picture in your mind. I'm not going until God's timetable for me to go has come. But when he shows up, how he shows up. He stands up, John seven thirty seven, and says this. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Well, that sounds like a discussion he just had, doesn't it? In a place called Samaria with a woman at a well. He is the living water. He is the living bread. He is the true tabernacle. In fact, as we have been going through chapter 6, how many times did he use the analogy of manna from heaven? And true and living bread. And now he stands up in the temple and he says, I'm the fulfillment of that. And and it will happen in my time. He is the light. He is the bread. He is the water. He is the tabernacle where God dwells with men. Not in a superficial way. But in an eternal and saving way. And he will not be deterred from being able to make this great contrast and comparison in his own time. That is his sovereign plan to demonstrate these things. Now look at verse 3 and we come to our second point this morning. There is a sovereign rejection. This has been the sovereign plan and now there is sovereign rejection. Therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. Now, we've had an encounter with these disciples, have we not? There are disciples and then there are disciples. And we've run into the ones who have left Jesus high and dry in chapter 6, verse 60. Almost to the point that the 12 leave as well. Jesus says then, do you want to leave also? 
And you remember Peter's statement, Lord, where would we go? You and you alone have the words of life. To whom else would we go? Good answer, Peter. But we know that those answers didn't come from Peter, according to Matthew 16, right? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And so there again we see the sovereignty of God at work. And so there are these disciples that his brothers allege are just so eager for him to come and work among them. Verse 4, for no one does anything in secret, Jesus, when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, because after all, they are master strategists, right? Show yourself to the world. Let us manage your campaign. Let us help you make maximum impact among these people. Several things within their response to Jesus demonstrate how misguided they are. These brothers of his, these half-brothers, Joseph and Mary's biological natural children, have not always been a a real fan of what Jesus has done or said. You remember Mark chapter 3. When his own people heard of this, referring to his his family, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. He's crazy. These are are Jesus' own flesh and blood. Now, many have speculated as to their motives and their understanding of who Jesus is here in this text, but one thing is clear. It comes from a heart of unbelief. Notice what they say. Go and do these things, Jesus, The text tells us, verse 5, not even his brothers were believing. Unbelief cannot accept the sovereignty of the master. Unbelief will always chafe at the sovereignty of the master, and it will instead insert its own plans. It will assert what seems good to men to do rather than trusting God to do what only God could do. And so they say, Jesus, go. If you go, I mean, Jesus isn't, notice how they presume upon him. No one, verse 4, who does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. We know Jesus here after notoriety. Jesus is not after notoriety. Jesus is after his father's plan. And so they presume to know what Jesus is all about. They presume to know, and this is what would, I think, lead many commentators to speculate, that they are after a political movement. Jesus, you want to be known, right? You want to be the great Messiah, right? Then go. They're waiting. Demonstrates their, either their own lack of belief and demand for more evidence to assuage their own minds or to get Jesus to do what they want him to do, most likely for political reasons. Does that temptation of Jesus to do what they want him to do sound at all familiar to you? Oh, I don't know, maybe in a desert somewhere after not eating for 40 days and 40 nights. When Satan himself comes to tempt Jesus, to worship him, to trust him, to do what 
Jesus knew was improper to do, and yet Satan baits him to do. And, and Satan makes some good, pragmatic, earthly reasoning, doesn't he? Look, if you'll just do this, then this will happen. Then, then you'll have this. Then you'll be able to do this. Jesus said no to Satan, and he's saying no to his brothers again. Their reasoning is they can't know you if you stay in private. So Jesus, go public. Make your IPO, your initial public offering of yourself. And man, the crowds will go wild. No. No. Get thee behind me, Satan. Get get away. This is not the Father's plan, and I will not be deterred. I think they're reading on to Jesus how they themselves would have thought were they in his shoes it's like i heard one pastor one time when quizzing a theology class on what is what do you think about god describe god to me and some student you know seminary student gets up and begins to wax eloquent and it's very full of uh, you know a, a very arrogant uh, pride in his own knowledge and the professor wisely says to him thank you for telling us so much about yourself Hey, brothers, thank you for telling me how you would run your ministry. But I'm not here to run my ministry. I'm here to run my father's ministry. And I will not be deterred. And we're told bluntly these statements, this rejection of his sovereignty comes not from lack of evidence, but from lack of belief. There's a difference. They had been told, they had, they'd seen, they'd heard. They think he's crazy, according to Mark 3.21. They have just simply not believed. Jesus rejects in his sovereignty carnal reasoning. Why? Number one, he operates by a different sovereign schedule. He says to his brothers, listen. My time is not yet here, verse 6. But your time is always opportune. You can go and come as you please. There's nothing stopping you. You're at liberty to move about. You have nothing to fear. The world is at peace with you. There's no warrant out for you. There's no open season on you. What have you taught that offended anyone? It's a good question to ask ourselves. If all the world loves us, we ought to be concerned. Luke 6.26, Jesus says, Woe to you when men shall speak well of you. All men shall speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. When the world starts all speaking well of us, Jesus says, You might want to check and make sure you're not a false teacher. That's a hard-hitting truth. Because that's what they did to the fathers. The false prophets were the ones that all men loved and spoke well of. Jesus says, you brothers have no such problems. What a rebuke. What a rebuke. We don't go around seeking to be hated as believers. But if we're honest, even in the most loving and compassionate way, which we should always be. But that does not do away with the Demand to be bold as well. And in being bold with the truth, people won't like it. Those whose deeds are evil will not like it. 
And Jesus is essentially saying this to them. Your deeds are the same as the world's. They don't hate you. You're not telling them anything different than what they want to hear, what they've already heard. So move about the cabin freely. To be loved by the world and to be separated from Jesus is the worst place to be. Though all men speak well of you, unless Christ names us, unless Christ claims us, that is a terrible place to be. To be loved by all the world and yet separated by Jesus. Jesus can't go because he is hated because he speaks the truth of his Father. Is there enough faith in us? Is there enough faith? Is there enough truth of who Jesus is in us and in our words and in our witness and our ministries to raise the ire of the unbeliever? To offend them, not intentionally, but truth offends. And so let the truth offend. Not our manner. Our manner should not be offensive. But the truth that we speak should be. The world does not like it. Do we have enough faith to raise that type of opposition? The early church did. The apostles did. They spoke of this great Savior, this great King, this Jesus, and the world hated them. Without enough faith that sufficiently provokes the conscience and the mind of the world, are we really identified with Christ? If we're unwilling to to say the things that need to be said and yet we know will raise their opposition. Jesus is hated by this worldly system. Notice what he goes on to say. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. In other words, I, I... Make the world angry with getting to first base in my gospel presentation. And that is this, that you are sinners in need of a Savior. Your deeds are evil. You cannot say that Jesus saves until you first tell them that there is something they need to be saved from. What difference does it make if Jesus died on the cross? What a heroic story for what? Well, I'm glad you asked. Your deeds are evil. What? Excuse me? Did you just call me evil? The scriptures called you evil. God himself has pronounced that judgment. And this is what evokes the ire of the world. But brothers and sisters, we can't go any further in our gospel witness without first telling men that they stand under the judgment of God for their evil deeds. And this is the part of the gospel message that is sadly lacking in our current environment. We don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to hurt anyone. But brothers and sisters, if there's no sin, there's no need for a savior. We must be honest We must pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal not only Christ to sinners, but sin to sinners. 
and cause them to know the sinfulness of their own hearts. You know, as we look at the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of soteriology, and and we understand our little acronyms about total depravity and, you know, unconditional election, all these other things, you realize that, that none of the end of that train works unless you first believe that you're totally depraved. It's the linchpin. Because if you're totally depraved, then everything else has to be true. But if man's basically good which is what we're told to tell people today, then there's no need for anything else. Jesus just gets lumped in to your cultural paganism that gets dressed up and called Christian. Jesus says, I'll tell you why they hate me. I'll tell you why they want to kill me. Because I told them their deeds are evil. Go back to John 3.19. Everybody remembers John 3 because of John 3.16. But what really gets the attention of the Jews is not John 3.16. It's John 3.19. Where Jesus says, this is the judgment. Wait a minute, I thought God was love. He is. But you can't understand love. Without judgment. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, meaning him, for their deeds were evil. That's why they're angry. That is why they want to kill him. Their deeds are evil. In his sovereignty, not only does God save, God judges. This is hard because we are, I think, for the most part, compassionate people. And it's easy for us to say we get excited about God's sovereignty and our salvation, and we should. Because that's every one of our testimonies. That God came to us. That God sought us. But what we struggle with the other side of that coin, that, that God is as glorified in sovereign judgment as he is in sovereign salvation. He is equally glorified. Because his righteousness is demonstrated. Because his holiness is demonstrated. Because his promise to judge is fulfilled. That is hard for compassionate ears to hear. But are they really compassionate? That's the question. The most compassionate thing we can do is what Jesus does here when he speaks of his sovereign plan. And that is one to reveal the sins of men so that he can reveal a great salvation for sin. And we are unfaithful, brothers and sisters. We are even, I will go so far as to say we are unchristian if we refuse to do both. You must do both. To in sovereignty proclaim God's judgment against sin, but but also his salvation for sin. And Jesus says, if I go up now, they will not hear this. They will not hear the glorious hope of salvation that comes from me. They are still wrestling with the judgment that I have already pronounced. Your deeds are evil. But I will go up at the right time. So that I may also proclaim my salvation. 
And that's what he does at the end of chapter 7. When he stands before them and says, I am living water. Drink from me. And like the woman at the well in Samaria, you will never thirst again. Why? Your deepest needs have been met. What a Savior. What, what a sovereign Savior. So he concludes in verses 8 and 9. So, you, you go up to the feast yourselves. You go on without me. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. I will come at a time when I can give the other side of this coin, this other sovereign proclamation of salvation. I'll come then, but not before. Can you imagine had Jesus not demonstrated the sovereignty of God if things really were up to men? Like our pride tells us they are. Oh, it's up to you. It's up to men. Y'all just decide what's best. You come to Jesus when you want to, how you want to, if you feel like it. You know, we'll just let things happen. Can, Can you imagine if Jesus had just listened to his brothers and said, well, if that's what the crowds want, if that's what Barna says they want, that's what the latest survey says, then we'll just go up now. And as soon as he enters the gate, they kill him because they're still angry with him. And he's never yet fully preached as he will the salvation that comes through his name. This isn't cruel that Jesus does this. It's gracious that Jesus does this. He he, he needs to more fully preach the gospel of the good news. Not just the condemnation and the bad news. My time has not yet fully come. It's come for for what I've done so far, but it has not yet fully been realized. It's not yet time to execute the sovereign final acts and proclamation of redemption. And I sit here for one this morning and say, praise God, because I wouldn't be here otherwise. I, I would not be here otherwise, and it is to our saving benefit that Christ has acted as he did so that he could proclaim and die as he did. Do you see the sovereignty of the Savior here? Do you see him totally in control? Do you see him totally in control for his glory and for our good? He is. Whether we acknowledge it or not, he is. And our response should be one of faith, And one of worship for a God who operates like this, who cannot be deterred from his plan. Let's go to the Lord now. As we close our service in prayer, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Just a moment, we're going to be observing the Lord's table. So men, if you would, those of you who are serving this morning, would you please go ahead and make your way to the front? There are no accidents in life. There are no chances in life. Only divine appointments and divine movement, all orchestrated by the good and gracious hand of God. And you're here this morning, and perhaps you're here this morning, and you have never trusted Jesus Christ. 
You, you have never bowed your knee to the fact that you are a sinner, that Jesus Christ is the perfect son of God who lived in your place, who died so that he might take your sin from you, absorbing all of his father's wrath against you on the cross. Maybe God has you here today to hear that one thing and nothing more. Don't leave today without knowing that you have trusted in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus for you, for your sin. For those of us who have, it's a great day. It's a glorious day to be reminded of what Jesus has done, of how he did it, down to these little bitty details of when he goes to a feast how he goes to a feast and what he will proclaim at the feast. And we give thanks for the life of our Savior, for the sovereign control he exhibited in his ministry for our salvation. Father, thank you for the way that you have worked. Thank you for the plan of your son's earthly ministry laid forth by you. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness to the Father, that you would not be deterred, that you would go and you would do according to his plan, regardless of what the world said, regardless of what your own brothers even said to you, so that it would ultimately result in our salvation for those who believe. We praise you and we thank you for that. And now as we come to your table, Lord Jesus, may these elements that we hold in our hand, the bread and the cup, that represent your life and your blood, as we grind the bread between our teeth, may we remember the life that was ground out for us we drink the cup, may we remember blood that was spilled out to cover the sins of all who will believe. And may we rejoice in what you've done because of who you are. May this be a great time of not only reflection, but of worship. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you that by your Spirit's presence among us, that the Word of Christ, the living God, still dwells richly with us. And may those thoughts accompany us as we partake of the table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.